Christ is risen. Today with you and with the saints of the ages, I affirm that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, that he, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and the third day he rose again from the dead. I affirm this because I believe it. And if you were to press me further, I could give you reasons for believing in the resurrection of Christ. But this doesn't mean that I understand the resurrection. The resurrection is an event of such magnitude that I cannot quite comprehend it all. It is at once fascinating, perplexing, and confounding. But it isn't just me. Maybe it's even you. The disciples themselves were as confounded, as amazed, and as fascinated as I am. If you were to look at the resurrection appearance in the, in the Gospels, you will see a variety of conflicting responses and emotions. For example, in Matthew's account, when the women came to the tomb and the angels told them that Jesus had risen from the dead, they hurried away, afraid, and yet filled with joy. And Mark reports that they were alarmed and they went away trembling and bewildered. And even when the women told the news to the disciples, they did not believe them. They considered their words as nonsense. And in Luke's gospel, when Jesus first appeared to the disciples, they were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. And after he had showed them his hands and his feet, they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. A variety of conflicting, perplexing emotions. And in the preceding chapter of our text, we find a very similar disbelief in Thomas. In fact, it may have been this perplexing nature of the resurrection that gives rise to the opening event in our text. I am aware that some see this as a kind of backsliding. These disciples had just experienced the most amazing event in all of human history. And yet, prompted by Peter, they decided to go fishing. How underwhelming. <laughs> However, I think this is more than a fishing trip. And I say this because of some of the details that John included in the account. John named those who had, were present on the trip. He named himself and he named Peter and his brother James. And these names make sense to me because they are named in scripture as fishermen. And they were likely fishing partners. But John also added the names of Thomas and Nathaniel and even mentions two unnamed disciples. No, I don't know about you, but I do not typically associate Thomas and Nathaniel with fishing. And because of these added details, 
I think that this was a trip that was designed to think through and to try to get a handle on the unusual events that had so recently occurred among them. Perhaps the disciples are not a whole lot different than we are because when our worlds have been turned upside down, we often retreat to familiar places just to catch ourselves and to make sense of what has happened in our lives. The disciples are the same. I think that even though they fished, this was a men's night out that involved fishing, but was more than this. It was a time to try to address the perplexing questions about the resurrection. They're confounded, just like you, just like me. Why is the, the resurrection so confounding? I think there are probably many reasons, but there are three things that readily appear to me. One of them is that I am confounded by the majestic power demonstrated in the resurrection. How does one explain the fact that Christ invaded the very regions of death and commanded death itself to give up its dead? And how does one explain the power that commands death itself to surrender itself and to surrender its power? But Christ did this. And he needed no Sharon, the mythological ferryman of the dead, to ferry him back from the regions of the dead. He did it all in his own power. He conquered death thoroughly and plucked from it its fearful power. And therefore, Paul can write, O oh death, where is your sting? O oh grave, where is your victory? And Robert Lowry's him aptly depicted Christ's triumph over the grave. And so he wrote, Lo, in the grave he laid Jesus my Savior. Wait in the coming day, Jesus my Lord. Vainly they watch his bed, Jesus my Savior. And vainly they seal the dead, Jesus my Lord. Death cannot keep its prey, Jesus my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his force. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to raise. He arose. Majesty, power that bewilders us. He rises. The grave is ripped open. And the death cloth is very neatly folded and laid aside. Apparently, the angels are into neatness. Power. And then there is a great degree of mystery that surrounds the resurrection. I am confounded by the mysteries that we see in the resurrection appearances. How does one explain his ability to appear at will wherever he chose? And so he suddenly appears to the disciples as they're behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. And a week later, he does the same thing when Thomas was present. And we have no way, no model for explaining this ability. I suppose the closest example we have is from sci-fi shows such as Star Trek. But Jesus needed no Scotty to beam him wherever he desired to go. He was his own teleporter. 
Or how do we explain the fact that people who knew him well before his death and resurrection do not recognize him now? It makes me wonder whether there is any kind of continuity between his mortal body and his resurrected body. And yet we know that in his resurrected body, he still ate. You remember he asked his disciples, do you have some, anything here to eat? And they gave him some fish and he ate it. As a lover of fish, I like that. It's events like these that I find mysterious. And then I look and I see that this majestic power and this mysterious nature of the resurrection meets the mundane. This text that we have read depicts a rather, rather mundane things and it has fascinated me for the long time. The fascination first came when I read a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. I believe he titled it, The Christ of the Everyday Life. Think about it. A resurrected Christ in a resurrected body, walking along a beach and stooping over fire to roast fish. It is both fascinating and mystifying. But I suspect that I'm also fascinated by this text because I understand the surroundings in which this text is set. I understand the sea, at least partly. For the first 20 years of my life, I grew up in Barbados, an island that is set in the southeastern Caribbean Sea. And you may remember that an island is a, a landmass that is surrounded by water. I didn't have to go very far in any direction to be at the beach. And one can experience a great degree of enjoyment at the beach. Some of my friends may even be surprised to learn that one can have a rather exhilarating game of cricket at the beach. One can walk along the beach on the sand made firm and wet by the incoming tide and the waves gently caress your feet as if by foaming fingers. And very soon you experience a sinking feeling as the waves, waves rush madly out in the sea and they steal some of the sand from beneath your feet. Or you walk on the loose sand untouched by the waves and have its warm grains sneak between your toes almost embracing them. I know the beach. And then in my imagination, I picture Christ in the same beach scene perhaps walking on the wet sand or maybe the loose. And there's a part of me that wants to shout at Christ, resurrected bodies are not supposed to do such things. You see, I have some preconceived notion about what resurrection means. And it doesn't quite fit. But there he is. This majestic Christ, this resurrected Lord, walking on a beach cooking fish. My kind of guy. I also know fish. Growing up on an island, fish is everywhere. As a young boy, I remember the vendors would buy their fish from the fishermen, and then they would drive through the neighborhood selling their fish. And I can still hear their voices as they advertise their fish. Albacore, core. That's tuna. Or when the flying fish were in season, one would hear the familiar call, flying fish, fish, 10 for a dollar. 
I'm not sure why they repeated the last word or syllable, but they always did. And besides, even though I've now been gone a long time from Barbados, whenever I return home, my buddies and I still engage in a long-standing ritual. Every Friday night, unless something unusual has happened, we make our way to Oysteds. Oysteds is a town on the southern tip of the island located right by the sea. Actually, it's more like a large fishing village. And as one looks out in the sea, one can see many way, boats bouncing on the waves. They are the fishing boats the fishermen use to catch all sorts of fish. There's also a, a fish market right next to the beach. And here the fishermen bring their day's catch. And right along the beach and near the fish market, many small buildings that quickly become thriving, bustling restaurant shops with outdoor seating dot the landscape. These, these shops cook fish that comes directly from the fisherman's catch. And you can get your fish grilled or broiled or fried or however you choose. And it's always well seasoned. They prepare other meats, but fish is the main attraction. There's a variety of fish. Marling and red snapper and tuna and billfish and kingfish and dolphin, a.k.a. mahi-mahi. But not flipper. You name it, it's there. The cooks use large grills and other instruments for cooking, and the fires flash and crackle as they prepare uh, their meats. On Friday nights, Oysteds is a hopping place where natives and tourists congregate. And it's there that me and my buddies always go to eat. And sometimes we watch the strange mix of people and activities. We go to eat fish, so I know fish. And so in my imagination, once again, I bring Christ into this imagery. I see him bending over a fire, much like these shop vendors cooking fish. And again, a part of me wants to shout, this does not fit with my images of a resurrected Christ. You see, that's the power of misconceptions. We wish so dearly to hold on to them even when they are misguided. In reality, I do not know what a resurrected body is supposed to do. Neither am I the one who sets the rule for resurrected bodies. Christ, the resurrected Lord of all creation, can do whatever he pleases. And here in this text, he sanctifies the most mundane things, like walking on a beach, and cooking fish. This is his father's world and he revels in it. And thereby he legitimizes the enjoyment of creation. So if you love beaches, go find your beach. If you love fish, go get some. And there may even be here some good news for those of us who love to eat. You see, in Luke, Jesus ate fish in the presence of his disciples. And I suspect that in this text, he does the very same thing. Think about it. You can eat in a resurrected body. Hey, Steve. <laughs> but even though there are several things that confound me, there are some things I understand. I understand that the resurrection reveals God's love for lost humanity. Christ became incarnate. 
He lived and he died and he rose for our justification. It's all about love. It reflects the love of God who loved the whole world and gave his only begotten son to live and die and rise again to make us holy. This love of Christ moves him to answer some of our deepest fears and doubts. And the greatest example of this come when Jesus appeared the first time to the gathered disciples who had crouched fearfully behind closed doors. Fears and doubts plagued them even if they did not say it. And then Jesus came like the good shepherd the second time, specifically for Thomas, who freely expressed his fears and doubts. And I want you to know that he will do the same for us when we experience our own crises of faith. And Christ also seems to reveal himself in ways that are familiar to us so that we may recognize him. In our text, the disciples recognize him when they let down their nets and caught fish at his command. You might remember that a similar event occurred in Luke chapter 5 when Peter met Jesus. The sons of Zebedee were also there. And in the earlier example, they had also labored all night in the Sea of Gennesaret. And actually, this is one of the many names, it seems, for the Sea of Galilee. Because it is also called the Sea of Chinneroth and the Sea of Tiberias, the same place. And now the same event with the same result after a long night of fishing. They had caught nothing. And then Christ says, let down your nets. And they caught a great degree of fish, 153, just like the time before, probably in the same place on this Sea of Galilee. The circumstances are the same. No wonder John immediately said, it is the Lord. They recognize him in this familiar event of letting down nets and catching fish at his command. And in the first resurrection appearance in John 20, when Jesus presented himself to Mary, and she thought he was a gardener. She did not recognize him even when he spoke to her. But then he called her name. Mary? He must have called her name hundreds of times. And she heard the voice And she heard the name, and she immediately knew it was Jesus. And she cried, Rabboni. One of the most remarkable, memorable resurrection appearances comes in Luke's account of the two disciples on the way to Emmaus. They walked with him for seven miles, and they talked to him, but they did not recognize him. Imagine that. What is there about a resurrection body that you can't tell who it is? Seven miles, talking. They don't recognize him. And then they sit down, and he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. 
They recognized him in this familiar ritual of breaking bread, which they had probably seen many times. And now they recognize him. I say all of this to make one point, that it is often in ways that are familiar to us that Christ reveals himself. He often accommodates himself to our experiences so that we may more fully recognize him when he comes to us. And always, he does it in a way that befits our situation and our circumstances. I think most people who know me would say that I'm a bit of a realist. In many ways, I'm fairly practical. I like to keep my feet firmly planted on terra firma. And pretty often, I even like to play with dirt. No bungee jumping for me. No riding in gliders, which I consider planes without engines. And I say the latter because I preached a few times a few years ago at a church in Louisville. And one Sunday morning, the, one of the leaders of the church told my wife, Adina, and I that his hobby was flying gliders, gliders. And he explained it all to us. And then he did what I feared. He invited us to go gliding with him. And I politely declined. No planes without engines for me. But a diner who is much more adventurous than I am thought it would be fun and encouraged me to go. And I told her, when you go up, just wave at me. <laughs> but those who know me, my more private side, know that I take my flights of fancy and imagination. You see, I'm a dreamer, although I'm a private dreamer. And how has Christ revealed himself and his plans and purposes for me? At times when I've been perplexed and uncertain, you guessed it, many times he has come through dreams. I do not mean earth-shattering dreams, but small, innocuous dreams meaningful only to me. So how does he come to you? What is the familiar way in which he, you recognize him? I don't know what that is, perhaps you do, but I, I know that whenever you need him, he will reveal himself to you and he will do it in a familiar way. Neither do I know what needs you have that he will stoop to meet, but I do know that the resurrected Christ will come to you because he knows our deepest needs and longings long before we do. And he knows just how to appear in ways by which we can recognize him. Earlier I noted that the resurrection is all about love. And in these varied ways, Christ demonstrates his love for us. But love begets love. We respond to the ultimate love revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. No wonder that in the section of the chapter that follows our text, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? He could have asked the very same thing of every disciples, those seven disciples gathered there. And he asked the same of us. Do you love me? How will you respond to that love? 
though sometimes you find it confounding and perplexing, how will you respond? Isaac Watts wrote his famous hymn with these lines. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. How will you respond to this great confounding love revealed in the resurrection? Amen. Father, may you, just as you did with the disciples on the Emmaus Road, the hearts were open. May you open our hearts. And we trust that the words that have entered in may make us respond in the only way possible by some commitment of love. Amen.